Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein. Welcome to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today we are asking Frank Lance about games and gaming. One of the most exciting aspects of philosophy is being able to focus on something we take for granted and realizing in the process that it too is complex, nuanced, and intriguing. The world we live in is a layered place. Peeling away at it is what leads us to insights about ethics, aesthetics, metaphysics, and other philosophical subfields. Making an ordinary object the focus of philosophical inquiry, whether it's a vase or a salamander, enhances our appreciation of it and the world. And it makes us wonder how we can truly understand the universe without grasping everything in it at the same time. Sometimes this process feels like academic work, but often it feels like play, an apt descriptor since today's episode is about games. If you had asked me before I started preparing for this episode whether gaming had a philosophy, I would have only assumed it did because everything else does, but I wouldn't have had much more to say about it. I have noticed that the board games that I grew up with, Life, Sorry, Monopoly, have been eclipsed by more modern creations like Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride and Dominion. I've also learned sort of in the background that such games are categorized under jargony monikers like Eurogames and Ameritrash, but don't ask me what they mean. I still don't know. If you had pressed me to think more deeply about the question, I would have been forced to contemplate whether these physical objects are in the same category as their digital brethren. Is a board game a game in the same way that Call of Duty, Tetris, or World of Warcraft are? My instinct is that they're not, but I can't really back that up. All of them are fun diversions that are played largely for their own sake. They're created to inspire camaraderie and pique one's emotions, but so is playing in a swing band or dancing in a troupe, and those are not games, or are they? What's the relationship between games and the creative arts? And what about poker? which feels like it's more about money than fun, or spin the bottle, the gateway sex game par excellence. Where do they fit in? How much of gaming depends on world building? How essential is the collective experience? Is a one-person game more or less meaningful because we play it by ourselves? Are classics like chess and Go inherently better than modern alternatives because they're unbeatable and because they carry the weight of culture and history with them? To put it almost succinctly, what makes a game good? These are the next level questions that come to mind as I contemplate a bit more, but I simply don't know where to go next. How do I answer these questions? I haven't a clue. Here's the thing. I know so little about games. I've spent such minimal time thinking about them as themselves that I feel like even these questions are missing their targets. As with all philosophy, just finding the problem is a form of expertise. I need someone to show me where the shadows lie, to defamiliarize gaming. To use a term taken from art, I'd like someone to take games and make them strange. That's what we'll do on today's episode. For our discussion, we'll be joined by a game creator and a university educator who understands and can articulate the process of game design. What must someone do when they want to create a new game? How do they interrogate those who come before them? How can we sell the public on a new way of finding the fun? In particular, 
our guest is going to approach game design from an aesthetic perspective. He's going to conclude that games are, in his words, the defining art form of the 21st century. We need to think about games in ways analogous to how we think about music, dance, and theater, he'll assert. And he'll claim games give us great insight into human reason. Now, don't worry if you don't know what any of this means yet. We'll get there. This is just the description on the inside of the box. For the time being, however, I simply want to insist that games and gaming are themselves worthy objects of inquiry, that we can and ought to take them as seriously as we do any other human creation. If we want to know about the world, if we want to know about ourselves, we cannot neglect these pastimes that have followed our species through the ages. Games are not just childish toys that mass boredom or an excuse to drink when the beer is low-end and skunky. Video games shouldn't be reduced to embarrassing enablers of toxic masculinity or booby prizes for the lonely. Games of all forms are an intrinsic part of the human experience and our lives would be less valuable without them. And it is worth our time to figure out why. To put all of this another way, games are not just kid stuff, and it's time that we started treating them with more philosophical respect. And now our guest, Frank Lance, is a game designer and founding chair of the NYU Game Center. He's the co-founder of Area Code Games and Everybody House Games and the creator of the game Universal Paperclips, which, by the way, my best friend Gail loves. He has taught game design for over 20 years at New York University Parsons School of Design and the School of Visual Arts. And his new book, The Beauty of Games, was just released by MIT Press two months ago. Frank, welcome to Why. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. To our listeners, if you'd like to participate, please share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. TikTok and threads are on the way. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. Rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform so that others can find the show and listen to all 15 years worth of episodes for free, as well as our sister show, Philosophical Currents, at our website, yradioshow.org. And as always, this show can only happen with your support. We exist solely on listener contributions. So click donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota Alumni Foundation portal. So, Frank, before we get down to business, congratulations on the new book. It's, it's great. It's clear. Thank it's you. Well, it's well argued. But the thing is, right, it's such a new realm for me. It was like discovering a whole new texture I've never felt before. It was really wonderful. I recommend it. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Let's begin by jumping off where my monologue ended. As an academic, what does it mean to take games seriously? Well, I think on the one hand, the, the central claim of the book, which is that uh, games are a form of culture that's something similar to uh, film or, or music or painting or dance or literature. I think on the one hand, it seems kind of obvious to us like if you especially if you think about games as pop culture that's clearly what they are right they're they're clearly they're they're similar to 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 like pop music right if you think about uh how we relate to music and pop music and, and then you think about games board games and video games kind of alongside that it's, they're clearly something like that and yet i think we don't really often think about the consequences of that. So, so what does that mean? Like how, you know, how do we talk about music and film and literature? Like how do we think about the ways that those 
forms of culture are are made and and consumed and whether they're meaningful and how they operate in our lives and what's important about them. So really it's a really, it was about trying to um, I think treating games seriously as a topic really just means looking at that and thinking through the consequences. Like how, how do these things function in our lives? What, how do they work? What do we, what do we want from them? What do we get from them? Uh, What do we want more of, you know, how are they like, how are they healthy as a form of culture? How, How would we like them to, to evolve uh, to give us more of whatever it is that that we like about them, we what we want from them. Um, I think those are the, the the big questions that, from my perspective as someone who teaches both game design, uh, you know, c- the craft of making games, uh, but also has spent a lot of time thinking about you know what they are and 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 what they mean and and uh, and why we why we make them and, and play them. You have this wonderful analogy in the middle of the book where you're talking about thinking about games analogous to music. And you, and you point out that karaoke is on the same spectrum as, you know, high-end classical music. It's just a different part. And that you can see that same sort of spectrum in terms of games. What what does that tell us? Why does including karaoke in that list help us navigate all of the different kinds of games there are? I think it's uh, because status and prestige are mind killers. Um, (laughs) I think that one of the main issues that happens when you start to talk about art is you come up against the, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage uh, that has to do with arts status, like even the word art, like I, I try to avoid it. You know, I start the book by talking about aesthetics, but in a, in a way that I'm just trying to dismantle the kind of trick that the word art plays on our brain by confusing us, you know, by, but because of arts deep roots in superstition and, and religion and, uh, and things like that. And it, even its current status uh, you know, as as a word, we use it to to mean something that's lofty and uh, and prestigious and has a kind of mysterious power, and so we use it as a superlative. Uh, and I'm trying to kind of get beyond that. I mean, I think that the the realm of of culture and and pop culture and cultural works uh, that are expressed, whether they're literature or TV shows, uh, stand-up comedy. I mean, it's just, it's a broad range that includes both these very complex and deep and refined kind of experiences that require a, a high degree of, of literacy and are, and are challenging and, uh, and, and, and can be transcendent and can give us, you know, these kind of deep, emotionally moving kind of experiences, but it also just includes the, just the stuff we listen to and, and watch and, and, you know, the content we consume, you know, to, to, to put it into kind of like internet terms, like it's like, it's all one big spectrum and, you know, it's, so it's, I just think it helps to, to kind of get beyond some of the hangups we have about this, about these kind of status issues. 
And so by, by understanding music in a way that includes both, you know, the most transcendent kind of experience you can have, uh, you know, listening to Bach or Beethoven or, or something like that, but then also uh, the, the, the thrill that we have when, when listening to pop music uh, the 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 challenge of learning an instrument ourselves of learning to play the piano and kind of stumblingly you know like uh, figuring out how how to make our own music or or going out to the bar and and doing karaoke these things are all part of the spectrum of of experiencing a cultural form like music and the same thing is true of games that's the thing I'm trying to emphasize so I'm gonna um tell you a question that I'm going to ask in a couple minutes, but uh, I want to take a, a, a side trip somewhere first. So the question I'm going to ask you is, why is something like Hungry Hungry Hippos in the same category as something like World of Warcraft or or um, I can't even think of the, the latest, uh, you know, video games, um, Call of Duty or something like that? Why are they the same category? But 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 hold off on that. OK, in terms of sort of fitting this in, in, in a worldview, where does gaming and game design fit in the university blueprint? Are the video game designers in computer science? Are the, is this a, a art school thing? Is it a humanities? Where does this fit in, in our, in our map of human knowledge? Well, there's three broad ways that, uh, universities typically approach the the topic. Uh, one popular way is to see uh, is to focus on on video games and computer games, and to see those as being a subset of of software. And so to put the whole thing kind of like as a subdomain under computer science, right? So that's one approach. It's more of kind of an engineering focused approach. Uh, another way is to see games as part of a, a kind of modern expression of digital culture and to have a more kind of cultural studies approach that you might put the study of games alongside other kinds of like internet culture, uh, other kinds of software, but, but taking more of a, um, of, a, of an interpretive approach. Let's look at this thing uh, as, you know, the, the way that we understand uh, film and television and media. And so that kind of media studies approach, which is a little bit more academic, a little more scholarly, a little more interpretive. That's, a, I would say, the second bucket. And then the third way, which is the way we like to do it at NYU. So when we created the NYU Game Center, this was the approach we took is to really treat it, uh, to treat game design first and foremost as a design discipline, um, as, as a, uh, to, to, to look at it as a, the, the sort of craft and art form of making culture the same way that you study uh, that you study painting or that you study literature or that you study film. If you're, if you're making film um, that uh, it is about creating a context for learning both the, the skills of how to make these things, uh, but, but also within the context of 
these larger creative questions. Okay, what is, why are you making them? What is your personal voice? What are the kinds of games you want to make? And how are you going to do that? And how are you going to find an audience? So this is really the kind of art school approach uh, where it is about making these things, learning how to make them, but always pushing yourself to, to kind of innovate. Like, like the point of doing this within the context of the university, instead of just going into the industry and, and making games uh, for a living, is in order to kind of open up a set of more open-ended creative possibilities that allow you to take risks, innovate, uh, try to, you know, think longer term about where this form of culture is going, how it's evolving and how to contribute to that. So the same kinds of questions that you are asking yourself in film school, or if you go and you study dance or, or theater or painting or something like that. Um, and that's, that's our approach. In, in, especially when you're talking about art and the visual arts, there's a school of thought that likes to say, and I'm not necessarily endorsing this, but there's a school of thought that likes to say, all art is ultimately about the artist and that you really, when you see a painting or you see a film, you're, you're seeing inside the artist first and, and other cultural stuff and other political stuff is, is secondary to just the, the, the self-exploration that the artist goes through. Is, is there a, because you're working in that art model, is there a similar sense that game design is about the creator? Uh, and if so, or if not, how does the, the collective aspect of it mess with that? Well, I think one of the nice things about approaching a form of culture in this way is that you can have a pretty light grip on the theoretical aspects because the world will answer this question for you. Hmm. Uh, that's the nice thing is that you, you make these things and you might think, okay, well, the important thing is the voice of the creator, or you might think, no, no, the important thing is the, the sort of collective process, or maybe the important thing is the, the sort of hybrid nature of games, the way that they straddle uh, technology and creativity. You can have any kind of approach you want, and you can have sort of theoretical ideas about what is or isn't important. And I do, and everybody does. But at the end of the day, you're making these things, you're, you're putting them out in the world and they either work or they don't like, that's the, like the, the, if you think about, um, I mean, again, music or, or painting or film, it's like, yeah, there are many different schools of thought. There are many different theoretical approaches. There are many different ideas and explanations uh, for how these things work, but we also have the reality of things that, the, the works that are out there that are that they either find an audience and make themselves known to us and 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 we and we encounter them and they are they're just you know in the world doing their thing or they or they don't um and and that doesn't necessarily just mean popularity i mean there there are there are plenty of ways uh for 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 paintings and poems and films and games to make themselves uh, a sort of like present in the world in a way that you, that is just concrete and palpable where it's like, okay, no, this thing is working. Even if it's a, even if it's an, 
something that is experimental and has a, a small audience or it, you know its impact is 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 not some huge uh mainstream popular thing it's still like you know like you know when you've connected with an audience when you when you've made something people are responding to it it clicks there's a kind of connection there there's a kind of current that runs and i think that is ultimately the answer, the, the, the game itself and the world sort of answers these theoretical questions. Uh, so in, in terms of like how important is the voice of the individual game designer? I mean, that is just, it's, it's the only way to answer a question like that is to make games, put them out in the world and see what happens. And, and, in, and in some cases, it is important. Like in some cases, you, you play a game like, uh, I don't know, Papers, Please for example, or something like that uh, by, by Lucas Pope. And, and you hear, you see the voice of the individual, you see the hand of the creator. And that's the really important thing. Maybe another example of this would be uh, The Witness uh, by Jonathan Blow uh, or um, a recent game, uh, Disco Elysium by this small um, Eastern European team called Zaum. Um, and you, in each of those cases, yes, the personality the individual thumbprint of these creators is a really important part of the game. But then that's really not as much the case when you play Minecraft. You know, Minecraft has this kind of strange history uh, that you know, was, was made by this guy Notch, but he was doing a, a kind of clone of, of another game that, 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 that was, that was uh, you know, earlier. And, um, and you don't really play Minecraft. You don't really feel the presence of, of the individual who made it. Um, the same thing is true of like, I think League of Legends, right? You don't, you're not engaging with League of Legends in the same way that, that you're not feeling the individual voice of, of a small creator. And, and those, those are also very powerful game experiences. So I think it, it covers both ends of the spectrum. When we get back, the first question I'm going to ask you is whether or not you think that games are designed better by people who've had a more philosophical approach, a more unified approach than, say, someone in the, in the computer science department or whether or not this, this idea that you're, you're saying that the world unfolds that, that that has these games at an equal starting playing field. But before I get to that, you're listening to Frank Lance and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life will be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I am your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking to Frank Lance about games and gaming. And here's the one little gaming fun fact that I know that actually I talk about surprisingly frequently in class. 
those of you who play who are my age or vaguely and also play phone games will know that that there's something missing. When we used to play video games or box games, you would read instructions and they would tell you how to play the game and you do that first, then you play the game. But phone games don't do that. Phone games start with very, very simple screens that you figure out how to say move the character and then you finish that level and then you figure out how to jump the character and you finish that level and then you figure out how to grab something and you finish that level. And over a series of 10, 15, 20 screens, you learn how to play the game without any instructions. And it turns out that for some game designers, this is intentional and a development out of a Russian philosopher of education named Lev Vygotsky. He, he postulates this thing called the zone of proximal development. And the idea, which I use very much in my classes, is that there's a point where a student or someone can just barely do something. They can do it, but it takes their full level of concentration. And when they do it, they reach a flow state. And if they, if it's too hard, they can't do it. And if it's too easy, it's not engrossing. And what makes a modern video game engrossing is that it moves you to that zone of proximal development and you feel satisfaction every time your knowledge increases. I found that fascinating. I hope that that it's true. <laughs> but the question I have for you, Frank, is how much do game designers have to know this sort of thing? How much do they have to have a philosophy of games, a philosophy of education, a philosophy of of uh, end user experience and how much of it is just they have a vision of a game and it's a technical problem and they have to engineer it into existence. I, I think the short answer is not at all. I think that you are, you, you, you're not required or it's not necessary to have a kind of theoretical framework, uh, either a, a sound one or a broken one uh, in order, in order to make, a game and then have it be, have it work, right? Have it be successful. Uh, I think a, most game design is done in a way that is uh, embodied in a kind of tacit knowledge rather than uh, the explicit application of a sort of self-conscious set of principles uh, and, and, and it could be anywhere in between. I mean, some people do, some game designers do start with a kind of theoretical approach and they have these principles, they have these ideas and they're, and they're really applying that or trying to, to, to use that to guide their process. But most, most game design does not happen that way. It is more like music, uh, in the sense that, yeah, certainly a lot of music comes from a, theoretical place. Uh, there are a lot of more kind of intellectual approaches for, for thinking, oh, let's, let's do 12 tone music. Let's like break down kind of like the whole framework for how we're thinking about sound and notes and really experiment and explore in, in, a, in a deliberate way. But most music is not made like that. Most music is made in, in a way that is uh, about embracing certain existing traditions about participating within kind of well-established habits of creation, uh, about learning at the at the 
knee of someone who's more experienced and kind of copying them and learning how to fit into the process uh, and and then um, slowly kind of evolving your own approach and then deviating from what is established enough to to do things that are original and different, right? So I think there's always a kind of theoretical problem solving happening, even if it's not deliberate or self-conscious in the same way that there's always a kind of theoretical problem solving happening whenever we're being creative as humans. Um, I think that there's, you know, there, were, we, there are always ideas there, even if we don't write them down beforehand and make them explicit, but, but definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of theory, to be honest with you. I have a lot of my friends, uh, dear friends and colleagues, I think are more excited about like, Oh, let's write down, you know, the theories, let's write down what we know, what we're learning about game design um, in a way that, that uh, makes it explicit and where we can like build up a kind of growing set of knowledge that we can point to and say, oh, this is these are the principles that we understand about game design. I'm always more skeptical of that because as soon as you write one of these things down, I want to break it. You know, in the, in the same way that a great <laughs> film or a great piece of music or a great piece of literature is often kind of toying with the the expectations and the conventions and the and the established formulas of 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 the of the form. Um, it seems like that is just the nature of creative work is to always kind of elude uh, our ability to capture it fully in a, in an explicit way. Uh, and I think that it's important to have respect for that. Um, so, yeah, so I love the theoretical side, but I'm also skeptical of it. And I always encourage a kind of light grasp on those things. Well, you, you talked about music, and, and certainly it's absolutely true that that lots of people who make music don't do it with any real music theory understanding. And you have garage bands of 15-year-olds and things like that. But when we take virtually anyone, there is a natural inclination towards resolution rather than dissonance, that, that human beings seem hardwired into harmony and things like that. Now, some, it may just be so deeply cultural that it feels hardwired, but, but, but it's there. Does gaming have those kind of physiological existential touchstones that yes uh okay yeah so i don't please <laughs> i think i think that i think it does it's a it that's a great question and and when you think about what making music music first of all is my go-to analogy I, I really like music as as uh as a way of uh, as a comparison to games because it takes us out of a lot of people when they think about oh you're taking a more serious approach to understanding games as a form of culture, as an art form, their mind instantly goes to storytelling and they want to kind mm -hmm. of apply the, the, the framework that we used when we're thinking about film and theater and literature uh, and really like use those tools to understand games. But I think music is a better analogy because if we think about the experience of playing hungry, hungry hippos or, baseball uh or even even strategy games like a like a, like chess or something it's it is more about pattern and rhythm 
uh, of of experience uh, than it is about you know going through a a, a, a crafted story, a narrative. Um, there are there is drama there. There there are kind of emergent narratives, and in many modern video games, of course, story is very important. But music, to me, that there is just. A, 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 a great useful analogy there. And in terms of whether there are these kind of underlying physiological things that we recognize, like, like a wrong note, like even if you're approaching the creation of music in a way that isn't super scholarly or academic or theoretical, you still know how to play notes and you still understand when you've hit the wrong note and everyone knows it, like we all, you know, kind of can sort of recognize. Yeah. That, and I think there is something similar in, in games that has to do with the, the fact that games are little machines that, that you, that most combinations of rules don't produce a game. Most combinations of rules just sit there uh, on on the page or on the board or on the computer screen, and they just don't do anything. Um, and then some combinations of rules make the magic happen, right? Like, what is it about tic-tac-toe, this very rudimentary, very simple combination of rules that has made it attract so much human attention, but billions and billions of hours of, of human attention on figuring out the possibility space of this little combination of rules of placing marks on a grid and trying to fill the grid. Uh, even though we can look at it now as adults and see that it's broken, um, there is something about tic-tac-toe that works. And at the same time, there is something about it that we recognize as being broken. Right? And what does the that mean being broken? The, the, the fact that grownups don't play tic-tac-toe is, is a demonstration of our collective understanding of what it may, what it means for a game to be worth playing. It has to be an interesting problem that has an, that is, that has, that is open right? It, tic-tac-toe is a closed problem. It is mm. solved, right? right? And being solved in this way, like um, being solved in this way is, is one way of being broken. That's, that's kind of an equivalent to being out of tune or having the, the wrong note. Like if you sit down to, to play a game and there's a set of choices you can make and one of the choices wins the game instantly and is obviously better than the others, and the others, and right. it makes the others meaningless. That we recognize that, and we understand that this game is not working. The machine is not going. It's not operating. It's not working. And that's this. That's the I would say the equivalent. So these kinds of uh, like in game theory, you would call that a dominant choice. Uh, that that there's a, there's one choice that dominates all the others. But from the player's perspective, when we what we see it as 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 being a, a a closed problem. There's nothing interesting about it, right? The reason that uh, tic-tac-toe works when we are children is that we are figuring that problem out and it's an unanswered question to us. And we're, we're exploring that space of possibilities that the rules make 
possible. And we are figuring out where it goes and how it branches. And then once that we are old enough that we can see the whole system and understand that there is no set of winning, it always ends in a, in, in a draw, that there's no choices, that there's, that the meaning is gone. Like the magic is gone. The engine no longer goes. And that's the sort of, that's what I mean by being broken. Which, which explains why in the movie War Games, which is probably the most, <laughs> for our generation, the, the most meaningful discussion of tic-tac-toe, it's, it's why Joshua the computer is learning on tic-tac-toe. And so that touches upon uh, the question I asked earlier, which is also probably a terrible reference because only applies to people around my age. Why is Hungry Hungry Hippos the same sort of thing as hopscotch or angry birds or something like that why what is the category of game mean and and what is the the definition or the articulation that helps us see it as a unified concept as opposed to something that's really just a bunch of disparate things Hunger, Hunger Hippos is such a great reference. I really like this uh, <laughs> as as an example uh, because, um, and I think you originally compared it to World of Warcraft. You're like, how is yeah, Hungry, right. Hungry Hippos a World of Warcraft? How could these two things possibly be the same thing? This is the famous Should question we? that Wittgenstein asked. Exactly right. And I'm going to interrupt uh, just yeah. for a second to probably yeah. explain. Maybe you should explain how Hungry and Hungry Hippos works for all the people okay, who have no so idea what we're talking everyone about. Everyone knows, but let's just say quickly, <laughs> let's pretend that someone doesn't know. It's a plastic uh, kids game with um, – that's like a, a four plastic hippo. Uh, it's like a toy hippo that's hollow and you're – and each one is attached to a little lever, which functions like a button to send the hippo out into the center of this uh, board and then and then bring it back. Meanwhile, in the middle of the board, which is kind of a dish, it's kind of a shallow bowl, you have a bunch of marbles rolling around. So you've got all these marbles rolling around, and then you've got these four hippos that the players are controlling, and they're trying to scoop as many marbles as they can. So you push your little button, your hippo leaps forward, lands on the board, you try to try to grab marbles using your hippo and scoop them into your side of the board and you capture them and collect them. And that's your score. Okay. So that's, that's hungry, hungry hippos. And the um, person with the most marbles at the ends wins. Exactly. Uh, okay. So that, that what, what's going on in that game is, is that uh, the behavior of the marbles as they rattle around and bump into each other is semi-predictable, right? It's not completely predictable so that you know for sure what's going to happen when you push your button. Uh, And it's not totally unpredictable so that you have no clue what's going to happen when you push your button. Instead, it exists in this juicy middle range where you have a little predictive model of what's going to happen. And it is uncertain. So it's not completely random, like complete noise, and it's not completely deterministic, which is a different kind of, both ends of that spectrum are boring, right? It's boring when something, when you know beforehand what's going to happen, and then you do the thing, and then exactly what you knew was going to happen happens. It's also boring if it's just pure randomness and pure noise, and it really doesn't matter what you do. 
What's interesting is this middle range where you have a model of the system and it is partially mapping onto the system accurately, but it the system is complicated enough that it eludes your ability to know to predict precisely what's going to happen. And as a result, you're constantly updating and it's chaotic and surprising and fun. And that is the sweet spot that all games seek to occupy. <laughs> and, and so that, it, believe it or not, something similar is happening in World of Warcraft. The, the, even though World of Warcraft is a, unlike this little plastic toy with some materials in it that, you know, behave in a certain way. Um, world of Warcraft is this virtual world with its own lore and its story and, and all of this complex overlapping systems embodied in software where we're leveling up our character and we're kind of role-playing within this imaginary world. But at this, at the heart of it, at the heart of world of Warcraft is something similar in the sense that there is a set of complex systems that I as a player am modeling in my head and I have a kind of prediction about what's going to happen and I'm pushing my button. Like in both of these games, it's really about pushing a button, right? <laughs> and it's like, when do I push the button? Which button do I push? Like how, how do I expect, you know, the system to respond? And uh, and in both cases, when the game works, which I would say in both of these are, are good para paradigmatic cases of successful games, right? It, it works because I'm on that edge between knowing what's going to happen in my interaction with the system. And I am encouraged and incentivized to kind of like give myself over to this cognitive experience of, of being woven into the behavior of a complicated system that's operating just beyond my capacity to model it. Okay, I have to interrupt here because central to your answer and central to the book is this idea of systems. The game is a system. What do you mean by a system and how is it and why is it the core of what a game is? Uh, when we look at the world as a system, we're looking at its behavior over time and the things that constrain and enable that behavior, which create a space of possibility, right? So if you look at, you know, you could look at your job and see it as like a set of concrete moments, like time slices, where there's you filling out this form, there's you drinking coffee, there's you doing, doing your radio show, there's you teaching, like these are all like moments and you can see them. But if instead you try to see the rules that produce those moments, like what are the rules, the underlying rules that that generate the particular experience uh, that you have that could have generated a different set of concrete uh, events, but it's not true that, that it could have created any set of concrete events. There's a range of, of possible, and it might be infinite, 
uh, in some ways, right? But it's still like a particular slice. There's a particular range of things that can happen given our understanding of this situation as a set of constraints on possible behavior. That is a systematic or systemic view of the world. And it's kind of a modern thing. Like, like I, I would say that as a species, this is a way of seeing the world that we are in the process of evolving and developing and getting more literate in. Um, and it has to do with the human capacity to make machines and to, to build their own, to, to build our own systems, um, which then create kinds of experiences, create kinds of like, so when we think about uh, systems like political systems, like think about uh, the idea of crafting uh, a political system, like crafting democracy in order to achieve certain kinds of outcomes, that is a, a more modern way of, of thinking about the, the political world than, than the idea of the kind of uh, the, the rule of, of kings being handed down by gods, right? The authority of the king comes from God. And this is sort of like, these are traditions and superstitions that evolved. They are obviously themselves systems, but they were, they're not like consciously crafted. Whereas something like democracy that's that's like oh let's let's actually engineer one of these systems right let's come up with the rule set ourselves let's deliberately make it right so this this whole approach and of course computers are in some ways the ultimate expression of this lens this angle this perspective on the world because in computers we are building systems that help us organize and arrange ideas and thought and kind of reflect the world as data that can be manipulated using rules. One of the central ideas of the, of the book is that games are the art form of systems. You know, when you arrange a pile of clay into a shape of a person, that's sculpture. When you arrange a set of rules that determines a possibility space of possible experiences. And then you enter into that in order to explore it. That's game design. Uh, and, and so that's one of the reasons that, that game design um, and games in general have this deep relationship to computers, even before computers came around. Uh, and now that they're here and we have video games, you know, that, that's like, that's, that's the explosion that we're currently living inside of. But even before computers were here, Games were kind of about this this idea. So, so our first step in understanding what a game is is to understand that what a game basically is is a set of rules that 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 have constraints and the choices that you make within those constraints, and that's what you're calling a system, and that's why you can call. That's why I'm thinking of my friend Paul Sum, who was a guest on the show in the first two seasons. He's a political scientist, and he loves the game of academic politics. Right? He, he loves to right. try to win and to play, and that's why a political scientist can look at politics as a game, because in some sense, it's freedom of choice within these constraints. And that leads, of course, to the Wittgensteinian problem, right, which is that 
the justification of the game isn't within the system. It's, it's outside the system. So you have this wonderful moment where you say in the book that, uh, and, and I, I may get this slightly wrong, but you say uh, you can spend your life logically playing chess, but it's illogical to spend your life playing chess, <laughs> right? And so exactly. what, yeah. what the system does is tell you what you can and can't do. And and I guess that's why, and tell me if I'm correct, I guess that's why different players can have different motivations. Someone just wants to win. Someone wants to show off. Someone wants to kill time. Someone wants to flirt. Someone just wants, you know, something to do. Um, it's why the motivations of a good game doesn't change the gameplay. A am I getting that right? Yeah. No, I, I think you you're, you're getting it exactly right. Uh, there, there is a sense in which once you, yeah, once you start seeing the world in terms of systems, you, you understand that, uh, in a way we are always embedded in multiple systems. And, you know, if you think about what humans are to begin with, well, humans are a, a type of creature and we evolved, like like Darwinian, if you think about Darwinian evolution itself, is a is like a game, right? It's kind, it is clearly a system, right? And there are there are certain kind of rules about how genes interact and and how mutations work, and and over there are these like uh, kind of like you have these fitness functions which determine which kind of like winners and losers in a sense, and so we are. Uh, in a way, the result of a game-like system. And and then you can see, like, you can look around and see everything is, is like this in a way. Uh, we are, you know, at, at, our, at our jobs, in our relationships. All of these things can be seen as sort of as if they were a game, right? All these things can be understood as systems that we're inside of. But when you're inside a system in the real world, you kind of, you can't see it. In a way, it's very difficult to do what your friend does to kind of pull back and see the system that that he's embedded in and kind of understand it uh, from from a distance a little bit, get a little bit of distance and, and have this kind of playful attitude towards it. Most of the time we, we don't do that. Like it would it's just too it's too hard. Right. It's 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 impossible to kind of get outside of of the systems that we're inside of that kind of determine our our capacity to to think and be in the world uh but with games they're explicitly about that they are these little tiny e examples of systems that you deliberately enter into when you're inside of them they if they work they do kind of take over right and you you kind of for a, for half an hour or for 2 hours you really do care about whatever it is, collecting wood and building the most cities uh, or having a number go up, you know, so that your, your character in World of Warcraft gets to the next level or getting the most marbles in Hungry Hungry Hippos, right? Like for a, for a moment, you do care about that. You allow that, that incentive to kind of guide your behavior. Uh, but then you stop playing and you pull back and you realize, oh, okay, that was temporary, right? And so I think one of the one of the ways that games can be meaningful is that they give us 
this opportunity to enter into and then leave systems, to, to see what it's like from the inside of a system and then pull back and see what it's like from the outside. And, and I think if we do that and if we cultivate that ability and we kind of build that literacy, then I think one of the promises of, of games is that they can improve our ability to do that in the real world as well, to understand the systems that we're embedded in, to not be completely trapped in them, right? To have the ability to move in and out of them, to move between them uh, and to approach them with the same, with a little bit of the same attitude that we bring to, to games, which is wh why, why am I here? Like, what, what am I getting out of this? What am I enjoying about this? What's beautiful about it? What's meaningful about it? Why do I like it? Uh, as opposed to allowing it to, to drive our behavior in a way that we're not even aware of. And, and, and I'm going to pull that thread in a minute because that's super interesting. But I, I want to ask, the question that I'm going to ask is, are there meta rules for games? Are there rules that all games have to follow? Um, and is there sort of a universal uh, standard ethic of game? And, and, and what makes me think about that is, is we have a listener, uh, I'm going to use his real name, uh, his full name, Jack Rosetree, who is a fledgling game designer. So if anyone wants to hire him, seek him out. <laughs> but he asked a, a, a very technical question. And, he, and, and the question he asked is, is it ethical for a game to lie to its players? And he says, examples include stating a lower chance of success than what it really is. Uh, can players actually consent to participate in an experience that by its nature they cannot be informed about? So the question that he's asking is, can a game lie to its players and, and, and still work? I think that's a great question. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a particular example, which I think is very illustrative of this. Uh, do you know the game Civilization? I've heard of it. Okay, so it's a famous computer strategy game uh, in which you Build, you're, you're building out a nation and it's evolving over time and you're building new kind of technologies and stuff and and you're competing against other nations. And uh, it's by this brilliant game designer whose name is Sid Meier. And Civilization is considered one of the masterpieces of computer games and it's really a, a, a great beloved game. But there is a, if you look at the code for how uh, Civilization, Civilization is kind of, a computer version of a board game. And it sort of, it uses something like dice rolls to determine the outcome of combat and other game events. But the way that it handles randomness is, is it shapes it to be, to, to correspond more closely to human intuition about how randomness works rather than pure randomness. So there's a famous uh, kind of cognitive uh, bias that people have uh, called the gambler's fallacy, which is if you roll a dice and you roll and you haven't rolled six in a lot of rolls, then you think, oh, maybe six is more likely now because it hasn't come up in a while. And I kind of know that, you know, the law of large numbers, all the numbers are going to come up roughly this amount of time. So if I haven't seen six in a while, it means six is more likely. Well, no, this is a fallacy. Six is always exactly the same likely, which is one out of six. And But we have this intuition that's a mistake. And in civilization, 
the way the random number generator works is more close to that mistaken perception because it feels better for, hmm. for, for players. Uh, that to me is an example of a game kind of lying <laughs> in a way uh, that in some ways it's presenting this as if it's a random, is a kind of pure randomness. That's, that's in, in a way it's implying that this is a, a random process, but it's not a random process. It's, it's like if you haven't rolled six in a while, it, it just makes six more likely so that it feels better. Now that to me is, I hate that in civilization. I think of that. <laughs> I really, I don't like it, but it's a, but it's an aesthetic judgment for me. I feel like, to, there's there's a beauty in games that embrace random that that force the players to wrap their heads around the stubborn and and counterintuitive reality of a truth. Like if you play like poker, you mentioned poker. Like if you play poker, poker never, never, never gives you a break. In poker, it's like uh, p- poker will will drag you down to the depths of hell, waiting for that six to come up. <laughs> and it doesn't like you can make this the correct move in poker. You can make the the strategically optimal move over and over again and still lose. There's no one like Sid Meier holding your hand and telling you it's going to be okay because it's not going to be okay because this is the way the world works. And and to my mind. Poker is a more beautiful game than Civilization. I think Civilization is a great game, and it clearly works. I mean, I should be so lucky to make a, a, a game <laughs> as broken as Civilization. It's a masterpiece, and I, I truly respect it. But this is one aspect in which um, I think that question of truth in games is, um, yeah, it, it really, uh, it, it's it's elusive. It's hard to say what, what the correct answer is there. Um, and I think both... Uh, but but I think what what it really shows is that the only way to answer this question is uh, with kind of an argument about taste and judgment and aesthetics, right? This is not the kind of question you can answer with a slide rule. So it, you anticipated my mentioning poker because I was thinking about it the entire time when I asked the question. I had poker in mind because you you have a long discussion of poker in the book, and one of the things you point out is that. The, the the perfect players who know all the odds, who know all the statistics, who, who who keep track of everything and know the strategy can be completely undermined by the um, the new player who makes bad decisions. What, what, I forget what you call it. They're not dragons. What, what was the term? The, donkeys. The, the, donkeys. Yeah. Thank you. I got the donkeys, D right. Yeah. <laughs> and um and uh and um. Is that an example of the game lying to you because it looks like a game of strategy, but there is that chaos in the middle of it? Or does that still count as not lying because the rules are consistent and always stay consistent? Yeah, I think there is a transparency to poker that is a kind of core honesty and uh, and it's interesting, gambling in general relies on a kind of commitment to honesty uh, that is uh, is interesting and and maybe a little uh, almost like paradoxical in a way, because you think of 
gambling, this kind of seedy underworld of, of gamblers, people who kind of live outside of, I mean, gambling itself is kind of breaking the rules. Like you're not supposed to gamble. <laughs> you should go get a job where you like milk the cow and you get paid for milking the cow. You should, your job should not involve like playing this game and, and somehow taking money from other people because they don't understand it as well or whatever. Like you're already kind of breaking rules to be a gambler, to live in this world. And yet for the world of gambling to exist and to persist, there has to be a kind of commitment to to honesty uh, because as soon as there's a suspicion that the game is rigged the whole thing collapses so we have to have transparency and we have to shuffle the deck we have to roll up our sleeves we have to show that there's nothing in our hands uh you have to be able to count the cards and see that there's exactly 52 it has to there has to be this this machine that you can inspect uh, just like in in like Bitcoin or the you know what I mean this this right. uh, th- this new idea of like yeah you can you, you, I can look at the code and I can see how the code operates we can have contracts that that where I can actually examine this code as a machine and see that it does what you claim it's doing um, and uh, that's what enables this kind of like this all of these ideas of cryptocurrency and stuff and the same thing is true of 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 a game like poker that I, I can inspect it. I can see the cards. I can see the chips. I can see how everything works. I understand that. And that is, that is kind of like a, a, an important uh, ingredient that makes that go. And it's different in computer games. Computer games are black boxes where eh, it's not really clear what's happening in there. And there's a sense in which uh, eh, we're going to kind of bend the rules because really this is a, you know, it's a product and we want to make the player feel a certain way. We want to make sure the player feels like a hero. So we're going to kind of like take the player by the hand and and like lead them along a primrose path in which they get to make decisions. And are those decisions important? I don't, we're going to make sure that they feel good about the decisions they make. You know what I mean? Like that, again, you can hear my, um, these are just aesthetic judgments, you know, is that good or bad? Well, that, you know, that's for us to argue about. That's where we decide, you know, which kinds of games do we want to play and why. Uh, it's not a hard and fast rule that, um, you know, that games should or shouldn't be a certain way. But I do think that it's an important aspect of developing a more advanced kind of literacy about these things that we just recognize those different ways that a game can be. Uh and that we we look at we can look at World of Warcraft and see what it's doing, understand the way that it is manipulating us, and voluntarily enter into that and and participate in it on purpose and enjoy that experience and have a different experience than when we enter into let's say League of Legends, a competitive game that is in many ways I don't know closer to like football or baseball uh, than it is to to um, you know, like a typical single player uh, computer game in the sense that it has that kind of transparency. It has that, uh, that brutal uh, truthfulness uh, at its heart. Is, does that mean, because manipulating someone is not the same thing as something being rigged. And so would this suggest that one of the meta rules of gaming is that the gaming can't be rigged. I, 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 uh, that whatever it's, 
I'm, I'm not sure how to ex- explain rigged in the sense that, 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 that it can't break its own rules because I play this, um, I play a, a phone version of backgammon all the time. And this hmm. particular version of backgammon, it is so clear that the computer cheats, right? It's just, it's just, it is so obvious and everyone feels this way. And so if you look at the reviews of the game, the game designer is arguing with all the reviewers and, and, and giving evidence after evidence after evidence that it isn't cheating and that the roles are chosen in advance and, and you can go to a certain part of the game and see the roles in advance if you want, if you want to and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and there's the, the integrity of the game, not to mention the integrity of, of the game designer is on the line. So is, is a meta rule, I mean, not just that you can't cheat, right? Because that breaks the rule, but that the game itself can't be rigged or is rigging itself a component of a certain kind of game challenge that certain people would find fun aesthetically by taste because it's that much harder. Yeah. I I mean, I think the, the answer to this question can only be determined by people making games and playing games and that ongoing conversation, like that's the process by which we ask and answer these kinds of of questions. Like, Mm. do we want games that manipulate us that make us feel a certain way that craft a kind of emotional uh, arc regardless of what's happening under the hood or do we want games that that are truthful about a system and allow us to explore that system and to understand and to gain knowledge about it uh that that is that is true knowledge uh about what's actually happening and to discover and have that kind of open-ended uh, I think that the the fact is we want both. I think sometimes we want one and sometimes we want the other. And um and and it's and it's important to just be aware that these different things are happening. Right. I think the the key the the, the key meta rule is that um your your ability to understand what is happening, your 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 critical literacy when you play a game, uh that is a key ingredient to having a deeper and richer experience to, to, to having, uh, to, to having games, to finding games that can provide real beauty to, to, to your life, real meaning, uh, to have a relationship to games that, uh, you feel like is making your life better. Um, I just think it's important to understand the difference between those things and to just be aware of how they are, how they're operating on your mind and then to just make conscious choices about which of them you want. You know, that that's really interesting because uh, I have a predilection in my computer games and other games towards Star Wars games because I'm a huge <laughs> Star Wars fan. Yeah. And so I have that relationship already when I walk in. The game doesn't have to start off with that relationship. It's Star Wars, therefore I'm going to be predisposed to like it. But then if the game is bad or doesn't fulfill my tastes, then it's going to undermine that relationship. So there is going to be a difference between games that you have a relationship with before you enter and then games that you have that you just create the relationship by playing. Now, and that 
sort I mean, this is a terrible segue, but I want to get to the next part of your definition. So I'm going to ask you a leading question. Given the fact that games are these constraints, these working the system and these constraints within rules, does that mean that games are at root our logic, our human reason uh, unfolding before us? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I think the short answer to that is yes. In in my in my view, uh, <laughs> what one of the things that pretty much all games share is that they are a way of us encountering our own agency uh, as as things that as entities in the world that 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 are perceiving the world and then making choices in pursuit of certain goals. And so uh, whether you frame that as logic or not, or reason, you know, it's a, it's a form of reason. Uh, right. And you is, talk, and you talk about instrumental reason in the book. Instrumental talk reason. talk about what yeah. instrumental reason is and why it's so important it's, to your conception yeah. of games. In, instrumental reason is just a way of talking about the human experience of being a cognitive process that is uh, maintaining itself in the world, uh, being being a conscious being uh, that is perceiving the world and making decisions and taking actions in pursuit of goals. Uh, and this is just what it means to be a human. It's what it means to be a thinking creature. And in games we get a little stylized version of that. We get to like have a tiny, a kind of toy. We create a toy universe in which we get to be a little tiny miniaturized version of that, where now all of a sudden we're in a little world, except instead of the big, messy, nebulous world that we're actually in, it's like a tiny miniature world made up of just a handful of rules and materials, you know, if we're on uh, the tennis court, right. It's like a, like a virtual world uh, in a way, because it's like a, just a geometric plane. It's this rectangle. And then there's a net in the middle. And then there are these, uh, these objects, these, these um, Newtonian objects, these, these tennis balls that have certain physical properties and these rackets that they're the kind of an extension of, of our hand and our arm as, as physical agents in the world. And we're just pursuing this one very, very simple goal, which is to hit the ball over the net. Right. And that's it. And, and, but that creates like a, a, a problem of almost infinite depth. Like if you're, Roger Federer, like that is a universe that you can devote your life to exploring. Uh, but even if you're not, even if you're just someone who likes to play on the weekends, that's still, it's just, you know, when you play tennis, you're experiencing what it means, uh, you know, to be an agent in the world, but you're experiencing it as a kind of, in a stylized, ritualized way. Uh, and And the same is true of World of Warcraft, the same is true of, of Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic, right? Now I'm in that universe, but I'm like a toy. I'm in a toy. I'm a toy person. Like I'm an action figure in a toy universe. Uh, and I'm, and I'm kind of playing 
with what it means to make decisions and take actions. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of true across the board. Uh, and it's one of the things that makes games special in the way that they produce beauty and meaning. So instrumental reason is the mental capacity we have to to get our body or our thinking from A to B, that we want to achieve a certain thing, whether it's hold a fork or eat an apple or, or, or shoot the bad guy. And instrumental reason is the capacity that we have to do it. And by playing the game, this happens more automatically. This happens smoother. This happens without less conscious, with, with less conscious thought. And that's part of what makes games better over time is, is you become more adroit at it. And, and to illustrate the sort of th what happens when you make our decisions, our individual uh, instrumental reasons, decisions discrete and separate from one another. You, you talk about the game Quop QWOP that people should yeah. search online for where all it is, is someone that you're, you're trying to make them walk by pressing buttons. And all of a sudden this thing that, you know, the able-bodied take for granted uh, is something that is unbelievably hard and ridiculous and funny. And so all of a sudden by reducing it to its instrumental reason, we realize the complexity and also the beauty, because I would assume, right. And correct me if I'm wrong, that based on our, our sort of prima facie, our superficial definition of, of beautiful Elegantly playing a game with ease is inherently more beautiful than when you start and you're banging around blindly uh, and, 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 you know, falling on the floor. I think it, it's I, I actually think it's it's both. I think okay. I think the beauty is in the relationship between those two things. And the, the, the thing about this little stylized, ritualized version of of being an agent in the world uh, is that when we had this experience and we had the experience of tennis or world of Warcraft or co-op uh, we, it is, it is kind of, it's, it's bi-directional in one way. It allows us to kind of plunge fully into that experience to let it kind of overwhelm us. And we, we all know that, that kind of game experience where, where we are, we forget uh, that we're even, you know, we forget that the world exists and we're just totally inside this thing. We're just trying to hit the ball or, you know, collect the points or, you know, survive the next turn. And, and we've lose track of time we we lose awareness of ourselves and we are just fully engrossed. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there's also a process by which we kind of pull back and we're made aware of this, of, of, of we, we can like see what it means to be an agent in the world from an outsider perspective. And we're like, huh, why am I, missing the ball why do i why am i always going to my forehand when i should be sometimes oh it's because i'm afraid of of backhand i need to stop being afraid of i need to practice my backhand more so that i'm no longer afraid of hitting backhand shots and therefore i can move more fluidly you know what i mean like that's a very conscious and deliberate way of thinking about so you get both ends of that spectrum and you're moving between them 
Uh, and I think, and, and that is the real key. It's not just that it gives us this super turbocharged, hyper intense kind of flow version where we disappear, our consciousness disappears and we're just embedded as an agent in this little stylized experience. It's, nor is it simply that we are given a very self-conscious version where we're deliberately making choices, thinking about what we need to do to accomplish our goals, writing down, you know, principles and rules or studying, like thinking explicitly and, and deliberately. But we are doing both of those things. We're moving back and forth between these two mindsets. And that is, again, a kind of paradoxical truth of of uh of the reality of what it means to to play a game and 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 the paradoxical reality of what it means to be a human in the world and of course the best human experiences reveal things about the about ourselves and and, and about our limitations and our capacities which leads me to what may be the final question which is you conclude in the book that games are the defining art form of the 21st century. What do you mean by that? What is the defining art form and why do you think games play that role or will play that role to come? If we look back at the 20th century, I think it's, you can recognize the importance of film, the importance of cinema as being something like a collective imagination of the species. And I think that games have the potential to be something like that for the 21st century. And I think the reason that that potential exists is because of their relationship to computers and software. Hmm. I think we live in a world that is being transformed by by computers and software and i think games are the art form of software they're the art form of systems they're the art form that is made up of rules the little machines that are built of rules that determine you know the outcome uh, the the range of possible behaviors of a of a system uh that we are inside of and uh and and so the most important questions facing us as a species uh, have to do with, with our ability to use systems as a way of interacting with the world, as a way of understanding the world, as a way of manipulating the world, uh, as a way of organizing ourselves and our relationships with each other and with the world. And games are the art form of that way of thinking uh, of of that uh, of that perspective of of systems and software and data and logic and uh and and therefore i think they have a potential to give us insight into into the world and into each other and into ourselves, you know, and you can you uh, you can really see the ways in which 
gaming is changing cinema and, and beginning to eclipse cinema in the obvious ways of, you know, now there are lots of games that are becoming movies, et cetera, but also various different scenes. The one I have in mind is, is in Attack of the Clones, where you just watch it. And it's so obviously a video game and it looks like someone, you know, it looks like they are just advertising the video game to come. Uh, and, and, and it's really been interesting to watch these, this, this art form start to mature and start to reach its tentacles out into the world. And so I guess the question I want to ask, and, and we're, we are running out of time, but, but the question I want to ask, and I'm not entirely sure how to ask it is, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, this is sort of in the, the ready player one problem is part of what is going to make video games so important for the future is that human beings for a thousand cultural reasons are becoming more inside people and more interior people. And so the more we simulate the outside world and constrain it with the rules that, that keep us safe, the more we're going to be able to substitute video games for real interactions, vir you know, virtual reality video games instead of climbing K2 or, you know, ocean exploration or whatever. It, it, and, and I don't mean to imply a value judgment here. Is it just that as we become more interior, we're going to need our games to be more elaborate to complement our lives in a way that we would they would have been complemented 150 years ago? I think the short answer to this question is no. Okay. Uh, I, I think it's important to resist the it's the understandably intuitive uh idea that games and especially video games represent a uh a path towards more and more simulation hmm. right that that in, that we have this model of like the holodeck right which is a kind of perfect right. seamless simulation of the world from star and, trek for people who don't know yeah yeah and I, because video games because like big budget AAA video games especially put so much effort into creating these detailed and elaborate simul simulated worlds, simulated spaces, simulated environments uh, that that genuinely are beautiful and have a lot of appeal. Um, I think it's it's intuitive to say, okay, well that's the path we're on. We're going to go further and further into these uh, simulated worlds. And, and that is going to be kind of like an escape hatch from, from the, 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 the world around us, which is falling apart and, you know, coming undone. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is mostly an illusion. I think simulation is just one ingredient among many. Like there is, uh, you know, when I talk about the, the way games create a, a stylized, and ritualized ver toy version of the world, that's not necessarily a simulation. Like tennis is not a simulation. Uh, and, and recognizing the way, the ways in which World of Warcraft is closer to tennis than you might think. It's closer to golf than you might think, right? Like uh, it has simulation in it, but it's using the, the simulation 
in the same way that, you know, that Hungry Hungry Hippos uses marbles. It's it's an ingredient. You know what I mean? Hungry Hungry Hippos mm. is not about hippos, right? It's not a simulation <laughs> of hippos, right? It is, but it is about the world, right? It is about the world. It's about physics. It is about, uh, it's about our agency, our ability to model the world, to predict the world. Uh, and it's a little tiny stylized toy version of, of this tiny little corner of the world uh, that is both that has some, I mean, these things look like hippos. I mean, it's simulation in the sense that it's referential, right? And it's and that's an important part of it. It's funny. We one of the reasons we played in the first place is because it it hippos are funny in the same way that Star Wars is appealing, you know, and it draws us in. But once we're there, the thing that we're interacting with, if it's a good game, what we're interacting with is actually a genuine corner of the world. Right. It's mm. not a pretend. It's not just fake. It's actually we're actually interacting with with software. We're actually interacting with rules. We're actually interacting with other people. Uh, we're, we're interacting with math and with physics. Uh, and these things are real. And uh, and so I think. Uh, if you look at the actual games that people play, yes, some of them are simulations and some of them are quite elaborate and kind of do uh, rely on being these kind of imaginary pretend, uh, very realistic uh, kinds of environments, fake environments, but most of them are not. And uh, and so uh, I think to the degree that games can continue to become even more kind of influential and central as this, you know, form of culture that I think continues to evolve and grow and have more and more uh, impact and uh, on our lives and how we see the world. I don't necessarily think it's uh, a, a path towards the, the metaverse or the holodeck. I think if done in a way that is built on the kind of critical literacy of a well-informed audience that is pushing for more of what they want. It's thinking about their own experience and, and pushing for more of what they want. I think that it can be a path towards the world and uh, not away from it. That is a super exciting uh, prelude to what's to come. And I have to say that, that I, you know, the book was wonderful. I recommend that people read it. It's very clear. It's very well written. It's very step-by-step. -step. And so for people like myself, for whom this is a primer on philosophy of gaming, uh, I really, I really uh, encourage everyone to get it. I'll link to it on, on the webpage. And also just the, the very ideas that you're putting forth are super compelling and super interesting. And I'm going to be thinking about them for a really long time. So, Frank Lance, thank you so much for joining us on Why. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Frank Lance and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. 
Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Frank Lance about games and gaming and pulling threads from his new book, The Beauty of Games, which, once again, I recommend that people get a copy of. You know, I was particularly intrigued by the ideas that he put forth in the very end where he was talking about simulations and, and how that's just a small component of gaming, even digital video games at this point. And I was thinking about the movie finding Nemo where when they first designed the fish, they had the artists copy it as much like real life as they could. And the artists' renditions were virtually indistinguishable and people didn't like it. People were very uncomfortable. It had that uncanny valley effect for the audience. And so when they released the movie, all of the animation is very cartoonish and very stylized. And despite the fact that so many games are quote unquote simulations, they are, as he points out, also very stylized. So there are very few games that you will confuse with the real world. And so then we have to ask, as philosophers always do, what does it mean to be in the real world? What's engagement with the real world? And this is where the insights of the episode come in, because it's a mistake, I think, to think of games as not the real world. It's just a world that we can create and control. The happiness that we feel in games is real happiness. The pleasure, the anger, the frustration, the curiosity, all of these are real emotions that we feel in the games. And so we can choose for ourselves how important we think these uh, experiences are, and we can choose for ourselves whether we enjoy them or not. But to say that games are somehow fake or unreal is to misrepresent the intertwining and the humanness of playing games that I think we all do in one form or another. And that means, especially given the importance, as Frank suggests, of games to come, it's time to really start thinking about games philosophically the way we think about music and dance and theater and literature and other things. And for me, this was an entry into that world. I have a much richer view of games than I did before I started preparing for this episode. The question that I'm curious about now is, will I enjoy playing games more? <laughs> um, I'm so busy. I don't get to play video games as much as I'd like to, but also it's not a priority in my life. So in the end, is it my theory of games that I regard as the foundation of my sense of, of whether they're important or not? Or is it in the end just games are to be played? And if I'm enjoying them, they're worthwhile. And if I'm not, they're not. And I get to decide how important they are in my life. And games are games. And if you're not playing them, everything else doesn't matter. That's for you to decide, for you to figure out for yourself. And feel free to drop us a line to tell me what you discovered. 
With all of that said, if you've been listening to this episode on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that the longer version, with almost 30 more minutes of discussion, is available online and as a podcast. Visit yradioshow.org to listen or subscribe for free. For everyone else, rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. Follow us on all our usual social networks. Our handle is always at yradioshow. And please help us continue broadcasting by making your tax-deductible donation at yradioshow.org. Click donate in the upper right-hand corner to go to UND's alumni donation portal. We exist solely on the money you provide. Thank you again to my guest, Frank Lance, the folks at Prairie Public, especially Ashley Thornburg, who engineered this episode. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein signing off for Y Radio. Thanks for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you.